Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Splendid. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, uh, you join us on New Series Sunday, which always just fills me with as much optimism as you Broncos fans must feel this morning. Uh, Hopefully the series will go better than the season's going to go. And that's my last word on football today. Go Lions! (laughs) What a good start to a new series. Uh, if you uh, have been someone that, uh, ooh. yeah, oh. doesn't, there we go. Maybe I did that, maybe I didn't. I don't know if I did that. Maybe I've broken something. That, that's what happens when you joke about the Broncos in Denver. Um, ah, aha, yes, we're back, I think we're good. I think I got it. Um, if you are someone that tracks along with our podcast, one, uh, we'd love you to ask questions this week after the teaching. Uh, we have now a website, redcouchtheology.com. This week on Monday, we're doing a live recording down at 6510. We would love you to come and to ask questions. We may not have answers. We will have a response. Come heckle us. Come enjoy coffee with us. Come do any of those things. Um, and it's just going to be a fun time. Uh, that picture tells you just how happy we are to be podcasting together, Aaron and I. As we enter into this series on on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I'd love us to just begin for a moment with a question. Um, It's a little abstract. Have you ever bitten off more than you can chew? It's an idiom, right? Like you've you've entered into something beyond you, like you're not ready for. As I got to my late 20s, um, I, I decided I was unhappy with how physically I was starting to take shape. I, I actually had a friend who said something to me like this. That they said, everything about the ministry you're running is getting bigger including you, uh, and that wasn't a compliment. They were like, just, you know, they're, they're, so I, I just got to this point where I said, I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna work out. So I actually went to work out with a personal trainer, and I had this moment where he was putting me through these different exercises, and I was working, and it felt like it was going uh, well, and then he said, okay, like, take a breather, and I was like, huh, that was all right. Like, maybe I'm in better shape than I thought I was. And then he said words that struck horror into my heart. He said, okay, now we're done with the warm-up. We're going to get on with the actual program. And I just realized, no, I wasn't ready for that. There was, there was an extra level to go to. I, I wonder if that's similar to how these guys, uh, Lewis and Clark, felt when they were making their way across the continent and they land at this point where they see the Rocky Mountains stretching out in front of them. Now, if they saw them today, they'd say, huh, there's no problem here because you can't see them. There's nothing there. But, but at the time, they must have said, this is terrifying. Like, this is another level to what we were expecting. As we push into this series on the Sermon on the Mount, as you read it, there might be moments where you feel something similar. As I teach it, there are moments where I feel something similar. This is hard work, hard going. Jesus in 12 minutes addresses this wealth of different ethics. 
He'll take something like sexuality and he'll move it from just what you do physically to how you think and how you feel. He'll take something like money and he'll start to address how you spend it and how it starts to work its way into your heart too. He'll take something like an insult, an action against you, and he'll start to suggest that actually in those moments, you should respond in a way that everything inside you says, I wanna respond differently. As we push into Jesus' ethical teaching, one of the things that we'll come across quickly is this. This is hard work, this is hard going. Jesus does not pull punches. I think it's wonderful that it's both literally a sermon on the mount. He climbs a mountain, he physically goes to a place where not everybody will follow him. But on this kind of spiritual level, it has a lot in connection with that idea of mountain climbing or mountain walking. William Blake said this, great things are done when men and mountains meet. This is not done by jostling in the street. Jesus takes this band of early followers of his and he begins to teach them in this place. Uh, an actual mountain climber in today's world, Tommy Colwell said this, I feel a hint of pity for those who don't get to go and experience the crisp air and excitement of mountain climbing. Are they ever really awake? Jesus will say some things that are designed intentionally, I would suggest, to wake us up. And yes, it's hard ethical teaching at the time, but it is possibly uh, the best description of what Jonathan Pennington calls human flourishing. Jesus brings hard ethical teaching, but as we'll see today, he brings it not just because it's hard, but because he says this, this is the best way. This is how you are designed and shaped to live. So as we push through this series, there'll be moments where we might say we wanna go backwards. There's moments where we say, please stop, the pain is just unbearable because Jesus, time after time, will say things that will challenge and stretch us. And yet, in the midst of that, what I suggest we'll find is this, this we'll find this, this place of human flourishing. We'll find this place of this is how we're designed to live. So in amongst that, on the 12th of November, we'll do one of our two yearly baptism series. It might be that during that time, what you hear from Jesus is this call to follow him in a particular way, to take this journey that he calls discipleship, to say, no, I'm, I'm on board with Jesus and who he is and what he teaches. E. Stanley Jones says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. It would replace it by a new conception, animate it with a new motive, and turn it towards a new goal. It's one of the reasons that I would suggest for years, centuries, millennia, the, the church has struggled with what do you do with the Sermon on the Mount? Something that we'll kind of investigate a little bit today as we prep to step into the sermon proper next week. For around the first 400 years of the church life from 33 AD when Jesus dies, he's resurrected and ascends and the Holy Spirit falls on the church and, and in a real sense the church is born, all the way through to about AD 400, the only reading of the Sermon on the Mount was a literal one. They assumed that Jesus meant what he said. When he said something like, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek, he meant do that physically. Live that kind of life. That was the assumption. And then around the late fourth century into the fifth century, there's a shift. 
Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Suddenly it's, it's an advantage to be a Christian. Suddenly being a Christian might get you preferred in all sorts of areas of society. Suddenly the government begins to be founded on Christian principles and they all realize that there's a problem. How do you have a government that lives out a principle like turn the other cheek? How, how do you live out as a government blessed are the merciful? How do you enter into that way of life? So from around 400 AD, suddenly there's a shift. There's what's called, and, and I'm gonna get a little theological here, the two-tiered reading. People started to say this. There's some things in the Sermon on the Mount that are for everybody, the normal people. And then there's other things that are only for people that have chosen to be especially spiritual, for people that have gone into monastic life, for people that are pursuing the church as a career. There's a few things that everybody has to do, sure. But for a whole bunch of people, you can write off the really hard stuff. That's just for the outliers. That's just for the special ones. And this reading kind of holds water for maybe until the Dark Ages when everything gets a little funky in the Dark Ages. We don't really know what happens there at all. And then 1500 AD, again, it starts to shift. And there's a new two-tiered reading. But this time, it's not split into different groups of people. This time, this reading by people like Martin Luther starts to say, do you know what? You have to split how you live out this teaching. Because there's, there's, there's everyday you, there's private life you, and yeah, you should turn the other cheek. But what if you're a judge? Well, then you got to make sure that people are punished correctly. Then you can't be merciful. Then you can't do any of these things. So people like Luther started to say, actually, no, you have to live almost two separate lives. You live one way in your private life and another way completely in your civic life. That's just how the world has to work. Can you hear some of the language, the thought behind that? Isn't it something like this? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is too hard and, and too complicated when you try to bring it into the real world. So we have to start letting it go. We have to start making exceptions. As you start to get into 1550, there's this other reading. It's, yeah, Jesus was literal. He, he meant that you should do it, but we all know that you can't. It's just too hard. That's why we have grace. That's why there's death and resurrection. You can't really be expected to do all these kind of things. And yet for a whole bunch of different writers, thinkers, all over those time periods, interspersed in amongst this generalization of thought, there's this lurking question around the Sermon on the Mount and all of the really difficult things it will ask of us. And it's this, what if Jesus was serious? What if he meant what he said? What if this really hard teaching is actually a practical guide on how you and I are supposed to live our lives. David Gushy says this, Christians often, if they're honest, evade Jesus, especially what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, the result is not good. The result is not good. I, as a prayer prepared for this series, read the Sermon on the Mount every day for a couple of weeks. And I'll be honest with you, there were times that like climbing a bunch of mountains, I just wanted to give up. I just wanted to say, I can't do this. This thing can't be done without God's empowering in you. But it is hard going, and yet it seems Jesus was deeply serious about his teaching as a guide of ethical life. Dante Alighieri said that over the gates to hell there were these words, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And I don't think you and I have to enter this 
hopelessly, but I did tweak his saying and I said this, abandon comfort all ye who enter here. Alexander Walton with a bunch of credit to Dante. (laughs) There isn't always much comfort in what Jesus asks us to do in this sermon. It's going to be hard going at times. And the question that has been lurking behind the scenes for a while is this, where does it begin? Because if we begin where it seems to start in Matthew chapter five, uh, you would start with the Beatitudes, these blessings that Jesus states, beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew's version. I really wanted it to start there, if I'm honest, because I love teaching the Beatitudes and I'm not here next week and Aaron is here and will be teaching. And there's a couple of different ways that you might read the Beatitudes and I was desperately hoping Aaron's way could be wrong and then and he would teach next week and then the next week I could come and teach what I thought was the correct way to read the Beatitudes. But as we talked, we found that we really agree on how to read the Beatitudes and so he's gonna come and he's gonna knock it out of the park next week. But, but I don't think the Beatitudes, I don't think it's the start to the Sermon on the Mount at all. I think you have to go back just a little bit further to Matthew chapter four, verse 17. If it started in the Beatitudes, this is where we would begin. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I suspect really we have to begin here in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus talks a lot, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, about this idea of kingdom. Mark and Luke will both say the kingdom of God. Matthew, for some reason, chooses to say heaven, but in a Jewish culture, it amounts to roughly the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I were to ask you this question, if you've been church for a, uh, around church for a while, I would be intrigued as to what your answer might be. I might phrase it like this. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And maybe your momentary panic is you say, I feel like I should know, but I'm not sure I can put it into words. But maybe you might say something like this. It's, well, it's about Jesus' death and resurrection, right? It's him dying so that we can be forgiven for our sins. And my answer might be, yes, that's part of it. A really important part, a really significant part, but it seems that in his teaching, in what he stated he'd come to do, Jesus had some other things in mind as well. Yes, he always planned and would die so that you and I can be forgiven. But I would suggest, for the most part, Jesus sticks to this idea of he came to bring the kingdom of God. You might call it the good news, the gospel, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter four, he says this, I must proclaim the good news, gospel, of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is what I, why I was sent. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. It's not just you individual, as important as you are and as special as you are. It's not just me individual, but it's this big story, this big thing that God is doing. He is restoring everything that is broken in this world in what Jesus is doing. So an astute person might say this, okay, well, if we were struggling with gospel then, and it's now about the kingdom, well, what is the kingdom? What does that mean? 
And if you've ever been someone who loves to do like a word Bible study, if you've ever gone and said, I wanna find out every time that it says something like kingdom, well at this point you might, if you're honest, have gotten a little lost. You might have come to the conclusion that this word kingdom is simply a human thing, a human invention. In fact, if you, if you search on Google kingdom in the Old Testament, this is the first mention that you'll get. From Cush, a person that we don't need to know about, came Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, a little clue, mighty one there, usually a negative term, not usually positive as you might think. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and so it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, how many of you have read that, if you're honest, and said that seems like quite a positive thing? He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. In actual fact, in Jewish terms, it's almost certainly a very negative thing. It's like one who stands up and confronts God, who goes face to face with him. Nimrod becomes the first person that becomes like outwardly an enemy to God. Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. If you have a Bible open, if you're on, on your phone, you might see, hopefully you're not checking your fantasy football scores, but uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. It may, in your version, say Babylon. It amounts to the same thing. So again, what does that word mean? What's Babel? Well, it's a tower, right? You maybe remember this story. All the people of the earth, they get together in Genesis chapter 11, and it says, come let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So the first time we read kingdom in the Bible, it's in opposition to God. But that isn't the first time that kingdom is talked about in the Bible, even though the word is never used. If we go back to Genesis chapter one, we would read this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. You're an image bearer. The person next to you, as disagreeable as they might be, they're an image bearer. They look in some way like God looks in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. The fact that it says rule means that it's talking about a kingdom. You can't have those two, you can't have rulership without some kind of kingdom. You have a kingdom, maybe you don't call it that, but you have a circle of influence. If you own a business, it's part of your kingdom. If you have a family, that's part of your kingdom. It's, it's just the, the area you get to control. And, and God says these humans, Adam and Eve, they were made so that they might rule with God. It speaks to this beautiful role that humanity is given in the world. And this is where we get to see some challenge, some brokenness. I'm gonna ask you some questions because we know human beings are brilliantly creative. We know that they're made according to this to be like God. If God is creative, we can expect human beings to be creative. We were made to rule with him in his kingdom. What has that maybe looked like? I'm gonna give you some things that I'm gonna ask you, good or bad, so we'll pick, I don't know, left side jar can be good, uh, and the right side can be bad, and we'll start off with something easy because we just talked about it. Tower of Babel, good or bad? bad. That was an easy one, way to go. <laughs> so I'm gonna put it in this side. I'm gonna give you another easy one. Declaration of Independence. <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> it's not a trick question. Wow, suspicious. <laughs> gonna 
Pesticides. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe the answer would have been different a few years ago, but we're going to put that for now in the bad side. I've got to remember which is which now, especially as I put the Declaration of Independence in. What? Pornography. Yeah, yeah right? Demeaning. Destructive. Bad. That was the bad side, right? Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the greatest piece of music ever written. It's definitely good. Definitely good. Backcountry skiing. Anyone ready for winter? Absolutely. Put that over here. Oh man, I'm running out of space already. Pickleball. Nonsense, right? It's for people that can't play tennis. Because the <laughs> I can leave that there for a second. Chocolate peanut butter cups. Bad. They don't belong together. Which side was bad? I can't remember. Get in there. Even the peanut butter cups don't want to get in there. Interest, like charging for interest. Good when you get it, bad when you don't get it. Bad when the bank gets it. I'll put it that side. Spray on hair. Hey. Jack. I love it. Let me say this, if you're a guy and you're using spray on hair, you get to live in a time where bald people with beards look cool. You should embrace it and leave the spray on hair at home. I'm gonna put that on the bad side. Spam emails. Anyone supporting a Nigerian princess still? The Sistine Chapel, the ceiling, beautiful. The internet. It's a tough one, right? How many of you maybe are starting to say something like this? I'd like a different category. I'd like something that doesn't land bad or good because in actual fact, some stuff, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can start to get our minds around that we might say, oh, it's complicated. Nuclear power, terrible but also has the potential to keep all of the world around us warm and living with fairly clean energy. There's a complication there. Pesticides, we wrestled with that earlier. Yes, now we're starting to say bad, but there are reasons some people have got to eat for a long time. Like, how do we wrestle with that? Human beings, we are creative. We are wonderfully creative. And sometimes it turns out exactly as we hoped. It's, it turns out good. Sometimes it turns out terrible. And sometimes it lands in this awkward middle. I, I would suggest that the horror of this Genesis story, the brokenness that we see is, the, the, the horror is not that we're bad. It's that we were made to be great. When you think about most people you know of, that, that's their story when it goes really bad. What's the problem with Macbeth? Again, not that he's bad. 
He was made to be great. In 1932, good housekeeping has a spread of somebody's through the keyhole moment. It takes a look at a famous person's house and starts to talk about that person. And as they go around, they talk about how this person clearly loves dogs and animals, is very much an animal lover, loves to paint, loves to be creative, and especially seems to love children. This person, from everything they say, seems to be a wonderful human being. Turns out the house belonged to Adolf Hitler, one of the great monsters of our history. Again, with human beings, the problem isn't that we're bad, it's that we were made to be great, we were made to be wonderful. The picture that we're given of the kingdom is that God is going all the way back to the beginning. He's putting things back together as they were made to be. Yes, he died for you individually, but he also died for this world. He's transforming everything. That, that is the kingdom message. That is God bringing his kingdom. N.T. Wright says this, God's kingdom is coming in and through the work of Jesus. Not by taking people away from this world, but by transforming things within this world, bringing the sphere of earth into the presence and under the rule of heaven itself. When Jesus talks Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about his kingdom. He's talking about what that looks like, what it might be. And so when we begin in Matthew 4, 17, we catch that, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as Jesus unpacks the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to say, and this is what living in that kingdom looks like for you. You were made for this. This is human flourishing at its best. Stanley Howarow says, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of a way of life of a people a people of a new age that results from following this man whose name is Jesus. Jesus comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he starts to unpack just what that looks like. But before he does, he calls a few people who also tell us something about what this kingdom might look like, something deeply encouraging. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Next verse is gonna sound similar. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus goes and begins to invite his called ones, his chosen ones, his disciples. And when scripture tends, when it repeats a story, tends to do it so you know that it's important. This begins with an oral tradition. It wants to highlight something. It wants to say, notice this. Notice who he's called. And what do you notice about these two people? They're actually slightly different stories, even though we might miss it. The first story, he calls Andrew and Peter, and there's no mention of family. He just mentioned that he's calling them from economic prosperity, or at least economic survival. They're giving up their means of making a living to follow Jesus. In the second story, family come into the equation too. James and John are with their father Zebedee. They're fishing with family, doing the family, operating the family business. Jesus begins to offer the call of the kingdom. This call is bigger than commercial success or family loyalty or any other value. Jesus begins to pull in those that will follow him. 
But what else might we notice about these guys? We've talked about it at times before. The Jewish education system had this plan. You would go, every, every male would be educated. They would start to learn, and then they would start to weed out the ones that weren't gonna make it any further. Start to say, no, no, you don't have a place here. You're not smart enough, you're not fast enough. If you ever cut from a high school sport, this is exactly that feeling. It's just, it's miserable, right? You're told essentially you're not gonna make it on varsity. There might be a JV team you can go play on. Every single one of these guys that Jesus calls, they've experienced that. Because as this system kind of started to grow, as, as you went through the age brackets, they would start to say, no, you're not, you're not gonna make it as a rabbi. You can't learn this kind of stuff. You're not smart enough. You're not quick enough. Go, go get a job. Go find a family member that will train you in a, a trade. Go be a fisherman. Go be a tax collector. Go be something else, anything else. But this discipleship, is not for you. And Jesus goes and he starts to call those that everybody else has said, you don't fit into this. The beautiful news is here is if you don't feel like you can learn to follow Jesus, Jesus says, no, just by the people I'm inviting here, like this seems like it's almost up, to, up for grabs to anyone, at least anyone right now of a good moral standing. And then he starts to push into some other categories. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Again, that word, again, that kingdom word. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the, region across the Jordan followed him. People from all sorts of places, with all sorts of struggles, and all sorts of brokenness. And Jesus climbs a mountain, and this is how their story begins. The kingdom begins as Jesus climbs the mountain of the sermon, accompanied by a ragtag bunch of misfits. People that are sick, people that are hurting, people that are wounded. When we read this word kingdom, it's this Greek word basileia, sometimes it would be, appear like this, basileia tothio, the kingdom of God. But there's something else going on in, in terms of how Jesus brings specifically a kingdom. The writer Oregon said this, Jesus is the auto basileia, he is the kingdom personified. When it says that he brings the kingdom, really what it says is this, he brings himself, he gives himself to humanity. He is present with them. He is present and transformative for them. When he says he brings the kingdom, what is the result of that? Well, all sorts of people that are broken need to become healed. All sorts of people that are lame become walkers. All sorts of people that are blind now can see. That's what we just read in the little pericope before us, and that's how the kingdom begins, and, and then they start to climb a mountain together. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Matthew is really clear that all of this is about Jesus and about who he is. In the first few verses, we, read, we see six clauses and Matthew essentially says in English this, he, Jesus, saw the crowds. He went up the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth. 
He taught them. It's he, he, he. Everything is centered around Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom. He is the presence. He is the one that is transformative. There is no sermon without the preacher, and there is no kingdom without the king. This sermon brings to us Jesus who is present in this world and that is the thing that changes everything. If you remember nothing else as you think about the Sermon on the Mount and its message of the kingdom of God, the center to that is this, Jesus is the kingdom. You can't detach one and the other. Where he's present, everything is different. Jesus brings the kingdom and when you and I live kingdom lives, he is present and the kingdom is present in us too. Matthew chapter five, it says, and he began to teach them. Right now, just for his disciples, that's how it begins, for his chosen one. But what you're gonna capture as you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and I would say, if you get a chance, just sit down and read it. It's about 12 minutes of reading, and it's just wonderful to catch the whole flow. It starts, he began to teach them, but look what's happened by the end. We get to the end and it says this, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Something that he said has captured the imagination of these already all everyday people, not yet called by him, not, not yet chosen, but the everyday folks, the crowds that the religious leaders want nothing to do with. Something has captured them. Something he said has caught hold of them and who they are and what's going on in their own brokenness and struggle. How do you see religion working? Or how do you see Christianity working? If you're honest, you might say that for a long time, we've thought about the Christian faith like this. It's called boundary marker faith. You have people that are inside and people that are outside. And something gets you to the inside. And sometimes it's a good thing. Maybe it's a prayer, a practice. You went through baptism, you went through confirmation, something moved you and you felt like you went from the outside to the inside. But sometimes it's been a horrible thing. In a certain period, it was hair length for guys. You could see why I don't like that one. Skirt length for girls. In a certain period, it was, have you ever been in, through a divorce while well, you were on the outside? Have you ever had an abortion outside? There were boundary markers that described who was in and who was out. Then there's another way to see the life of faith. It's called center set marker. It's that we all begin from all sorts of places and all sorts of brokenness and hurt and story. And the question becomes, are we moving towards Jesus? Are we moving towards Jesus? Now, I'm not saying either of these is completely right. In actual fact, both of these have some downsides in how we understand the world. But I would suggest this, that the one that reflects most clearly how Jesus presented himself in the world is the second one. It's the second one. Everybody, it seemed, could be called towards this 
Jesus. There was this flow of movement towards him and people came with all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues. They were grabbed by him, just drawn to him, not just by his charisma, but by who he was in the world. And yet there's probably this lurking suspicion for them somewhere. And it's this, where do I fit into this kingdom plan? Is there a place for me? Can I belong here? And to find out whether they can or not, you have to come back next week. (laughs) But for us, there's this continued call of discipleship. I would suggest the best way to understand the Sermon on the Mount is that the king brings the kingdom and he teaches the kingdom's ethics. He teaches a way to live. And there's this underlying assumption that goes with all of this. And it's this, kingdom people live out kingdom ethics. If we're going to follow Jesus, we'll take what he says seriously. We'll believe he meant what he said. At times that will be challenging, at times there'll be things that will come up in this sermon and everything in us will say, I'd love to take this piece and just cut it out. Just pass it off, just pretend it's not in there. And the deep problem with that process is this. The moment you and I do that, we become the rabbi. The moment we do that, we become the religious leader. When I follow Jesus, this is the process I get to work through, and I think you're invited to the same one. I get to decide, do I trust that Jesus knows the best way to live? Or do I think I'm smarter than he is? We get to follow Jesus and say, no, I'm gonna trust that you know the way to human flourishing. You know the best way to live a life. The Sermon on the Mount begins as Jesus starts to walk up a mountain with a whole bunch of people that feel right now that they don't belong and a few, a chosen few, that have specifically been called. And he begins to teach. And the implicit message behind his words is this. This is the best way to be human. Welcome to human flourishing. Let's pray. Jesus, as we begin an adventure together, there is that potential that we feel like we've bid enough more than we can chew. I get to know where some of this is going and your words are hard and difficult. And yet undergirding that is this beautiful grace that you are here for us. You have brought the kingdom. And as we watch as you teach, give us the courage to follow you to step into what you have for us, to trust that your guide to human flourishing will lead us where we need to be. You are the rabbi, we are the students. You are the king, and this is your kingdom. Amen. As Aaron leads us in worship, if you are in a place where you're like, I feel like that ragtag bunch of people walking up, I just, I don't feel like I belong well, then I'd love to invite you out to receive prayer. There's some people that would love to pray with you. They've got tags on or lanyards on, and I'm just going to invite you to just come, and they'll just whisper a word of prayer to encourage you on the journey. But for the rest of us, let's stand as we sing together. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.